you're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, the podcast that celebrates the cultural connections between the UK and New York. I'm your host, British diplomat, Hannah Young. Jonathan Lynn is a stage and film director, producer, writer and actor. He's known for directing comedy films such as Clue, Nuns on the Run, My Cousin Vinny and The Whole Nine Yards. More importantly, for the civil servants among us, he co-created and co-wrote the iconic television series Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, which continues to serve to this day as an unofficial guidebook for how government really functions. For those of you who haven't come across this gem, Yes Minister is set principally in the private office of a British cabinet minister in the fictional department of the administrative affairs in Whitehall and follows the ministerial career of Jim Hacker and his various struggles to formulate and enact policy, typically opposed by the British civil service, in particular his permanent secretary, Sir Humphrey Appleby, played by Nigel Hawthorne, with his principal private secretary, Bernard Woolley, played by Derek Folds, usually caught between the two. The series received several BAFTAs and in 2004 was voted sixth in Britain's best sitcom poll. It was also the favourite television programme of the then Prime Minister of the UK, Margaret Thatcher. Jonathan has tread the boards, has worked in TV and film for most of his life, and we're so glad to have him on Brits and the Big Apple. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm so excited to meet you. I have to say, I cut my teeth on Yes Minister, uh, and I'm really looking forward to talking about that. But I wonder if you could kick off by telling me a little bit about how you came to be in this industry in the first place. Well, I always wanted to be an actor since I saw a pantomime in my hometown at Bath at the age of four. And it seemed to me that making people laugh and being the centre of attention was an excellent way to live one's life. My sisters thought I was already the centre of attention. My my mother was a very keen theatre-goer, and so I, I went regularly to the theatre Stratford-on-Avon and Breslovic, all through my childhood and adolescence. Then I went to Cambridge, where I eventually joined the Footlights Club. Looking back, a very star-studded group of people in it. Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Bill Oddie, Tim Brooke-Taylor. Oh, wow. You had to audition to get into the club in right. those days. Now right. I don't think you have to. There was a show called A Clump of Plinths, was the Footlights Review at the end of my second year at Cambridge, with most of the people we have just mentioned. It was so successful that a 27-year-old producer called Michael White took it to the West End. And I was in the band, so I went too. So my first job in this business was actually in an orchestra pit. And then I left it and went on to do Waiting for Godot at the Edinburgh Festival, which Steve Frears directed. He was We were contemporaries. So when I left Cambridge a year later, I had this degree in law, and I thought I was reluctantly going to become a lawyer. Bill Oddy phoned me and said, Cambridge Circus is going to... Broadway, do you want to come? And I said, well, the Musicians' Union wouldn't let me in. He, they, he said, no, in the cast. I, my first job was on Broadway. My first TV show was The Ed Sullivan Show with 70 million people watching. I love that you you refer to yourself as a recovering lawyer as well. <laughs> <laughs> I find the juxtaposition of studying law in Cambridge and being part of the Footlights really intriguing. That was a lot of us. John Cleese studied right. law. I suppose, you know, being a lawyer, you learn to... Be creative with logic. So you were on the Ed Sullivan show and came to Broadway when you were, what, 20, 21, 21 years old? 21. How, how was that experience? It was strange. I had my photograph in Time magazine, really didn't know anything about 
the business. I decided to go to acting class here, which I did. The others all wanted to be comedians and comedy writers, and I wanted to be an actor. They went off on a college tour of America when it closed in New York. I went back to England and got jobs in rep. And I was lucky. I found work immediately. In the summer, I'd been an actor for about six months by this time. I was offered a part at the Travers Theatre in Edinburgh, play with only two characters called Green Julia. We did that, and it was a colossal success. And it went to London. It was extraordinary beginner's luck. I mean, beginner's luck, but also an amazing ability to entertain. I loved acting. I don't do it anymore. I gave it up quite a long time ago. Occasionally, I've been sorry I gave it up. But I I can't explain when you say, where did it come from? Well, you mean either what one does or the success. The success is pure luck. And as for writing, where did that come from? I've no, I mean, I, I couldn't write for years. And I was an out of work actor for a long time in London in the mid-60s. I tried writing because I was working at Selfridges selling records and I thought, I've got to do something. (laughs) And how big a jump was that from acting? Did you find that that came quite easily? No, I found it came with great difficulty. Coming up with an interesting story or an idea, I didn't know how to go about that at all. It took me ages. I had huge luck with my very first script again. It was beginner's luck again. A, A gay friend of mine told me about a frightening thing that happened to him on his way home one night. It was an interesting story, and I thought that would be a good TV script. So I wrote it down uh, and, you know, elaborated it and changed the characters and made it more exciting and more... I was rather influenced by a pinter who was influencing everybody at that time. I gave it to my agent who said, I can't sell this. And I said, why not? And he said, well, it's about these gay people. He sent it to a few TV producers, and they all sent it back so fast that you would think it had anthrax in the pages. Wow. I thought, well, I know who would be best for this part, John Gilcott. Being a, a 22-year-old with nothing to do, I managed to find his address, and I sent it to him. Ten days later, I got back a letter from him saying he really thought it was a good play, and he couldn't do it because he would be too embarrassed. A week later, I got a call from his friend, Binky Beaumont, who ran all the theater, ran 12 West End theatres, who said, I've just had lunch with John Gilgood. He says, you've written a very good play. Can I read it? I sent it to him and he asked me in for a meeting. He said, have you ever thought of writing a play for the stage? And I said, no. He said, do you think you could? And I said, could we adapt this for the stage? He said, and I said, no. He, he commissioned me to write a play. He gave me 200 pounds, which was a huge sum of money in 1960 something. And I wrote a play that was absolutely dreadful. I get that. I go into his office and he looks at me and then he opens a drawer and pulls my script out of the drawer, flips through a few pages in a desultory sort of way, <laughs> says, what's all this about? There's no way back from that. So that that play did not get put on, and quite <laughs> rightly. Finally, five years later, I got something on TV. Well, let's talk about Yes Minister, because I'm itching to, and I know many people listening to this will have such an affection for that series. Mm. Tell me how it came about in the first place. Uh, There was a guy called Tony Jay, and he started a company called Video Arts, which made management training films. He understood, he had an inspiration, which was that management training films were all very, very boring, and everybody hated going to them, and nobody wanted them. But every big corporation had a training program, so people had to go and watch this rubbish. He got hold of John Cleese and said, why don't we make some funny training films? Everyone want to see them. Instead of showing how you do something right, we show them how you do it wrong. Brilliant inspiration. So John phoned me and said, I'm making a management training film with this chap, Tony J. Would you be in it, please, for a deferred fee? So I said, sure. The company was started by Tony and it 
for £4,000, which was a lot of money at that time. I mean, so. you could buy a house in Muswell Hill for £4,000. But Tony put, it, put that money in and they made the film and then they made lots more films. Dennis Norden and I were asked to write these management training films with him. So he wrote, I wrote about 20, which was very difficult because you had to get the lessons right. You know, you couldn't, a joke wouldn't, wouldn't be allowed if yes. it taught the wrong thing. <laughs> you had to learn the management theory. Really fed up with writing by this time. I'd written about 50 TV shows, and I went off to be the director of the Cambridge Theatre Company. Before I did it, Tony said, I've got this idea for a series about the civil service, you know, what goes on in the corridors of power. What do you think? And I said, I think that sounds really boring. Who'd want to see uh, what goes on there? Yeah. Three years later, I was feeling I needed to get writing again, and I couldn't think of anything. And I rang Tony and I said, did you ever do anything with that idea? And he said, no, shall we talk about it soon? And we, we, we had useful sources. He had Marsha Williams, who was later Lady Falconer. She was Harold Wilson's political mm-hmm. secretary. And I knew a man called Bernard Donahue. He's now Lord Donahue, And he was head of the policy unit at Number 10 under Callaghan and Wilson. So we got a lot of inside information. And we had to be careful not to mention either of them to the other because they hated each other. And they started introducing us to other people, right. you know, and everyone was very happy to tell us stuff as long as they knew they weren't being named as a source. So yes. we just said, we'll never name any source. Yes. We never did unless they outed themselves. We discovered that really you could boil down the activities of a government department to three key people, the minister, yes. the permanent secretary, yes. head of the civil service, head of the department's civil service, and the minister's private secretary, who was torn between both of them because he, his career w- was owed to, the, to, to Sir Humphrey, the civil yeah. servant, but he had to do a good job for his politician, for his minister of state. He was always torn between the two and about what he could say and what he couldn't say. And we discovered, really, that although a department is hundreds hundreds of people, he could essentially make those the three central characters and then just bring in other characters when we needed to. We discovered that, and we wrote a pilot, and it went very well, and... and, uh, we just kind of carried on writing the series. As somebody who has been a private secretary to the Prime Minister in Number 10, a lot more recently than your series originally came out, I can testify that it is so incredibly prescient and so many of the issues that you dealt with back then are still issues that we deal with now in the civil service. I mean, did you did you have a sense that this would actually be an incredibly evergreen project? No, on the contrary. We thought we'd do six episodes for BBC Two that nobody would notice and they'd go out late at night and they'd amuse us and that would be very nice. Wow. And that was what we expected. Oh, my goodness. But when the series, when it had gone better than that and was getting a lot of attention, and I started thinking about why is it that these... The issues that we're looking at every week seem so relevant to people because we, they weren't written topically. We would write them maybe a year ahead before they were done because Tony was running Video Arts and I was running the Cambridge Theatre Company and then I was directing at the National Theatre. So we only wrote a few weeks at a time and then we got a couple of episodes done and then we would go off and do other work. Maybe a couple of months later, we'll get together and write another episode. So, and I started thinking about why are these, why has nothing changed? And I went back, this was in 1986, when we were doing Yes, Prime Minister. So I went back 
to the Daily Telegraph, which was still in Fleet Street. And I looked through old copies. You know, there was no internet then. I looked through old copies to see what the stories were in the same week, that week in August 1956. The stories were all exactly the same. Oh my is there going to be a war in the Middle East? Inflation, deflation. Why is there no proper transport, unified transport policy? And every policy that people were arguing about in 1956, they're still arguing about in 1986, and they're mostly still arguing about them now. <laughs> what does that tell us about the cyclical nature of governing? Whoever it was said, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. You know, more <laughs> yeah. things change, more things stay the yeah. same. Yeah, yeah. And incredible. really, I mean, things change superficially. People have different job titles now. Uh, I don't think there are assistant secretaries and deputy secretaries, or maybe there are, but I think they've got other names. And, you know, there are all kinds of superficial things that have changed. But essentially, it's the same process. Mm. I was thinking about that, actually. I mean, I think um, politicians care so much more about caring so much more isn't the right way of framing it. But I feel like if you were writing Yes Minister now, you'd probably spend more time thinking about media and, you know, the comms plan for X event and obviously there would be greater diversity in your yeah. characters. But actually the rest of it is pretty much, it's but, still there. But there is a lot of attention to media. I mean, he was Jim Hacker was interviewed regularly, uh, various people, Robert McKenzie, and, I mean, mm. real interviewers. Mm. Primary concern was always, how will it look? Yeah. The second thing was, how can I sell it to my colleagues? Yeah. How can I get money from the Treasury? Yeah. What reaction did you get from the real politicians? Had expected them all to hate it. And they all absolutely loved it. Amazing. All parties. And the reason was, I think, that people always like seeing th programs about themselves on television. And they also, also because we were, Tony and I were very different politically, he was conservative and I was not. So the result was that the programs were fair and balanced, in mm. Rupert Murdoch's famous words. Tories thought that they were sympathetic to the Tories, Labour thought they were sympathetic to Labour. The Liberals thought they were liberal. So everybody approved, everybody liked them. Yes. Um, and then most important, I think, politicians felt really for the first time that it gave them an alibi. If they'd made promises in the manifesto and in the election that they weren't keeping, they could now indicate that it wasn't their fault. Politicians absolutely loved it. And when we went on the air, TV critics were rather disparaging about it to start with. And then what happened was that several really important politicians wrote huge features about how accurate it was. Roy Hattersley, who was deputy leader of the Labour Party, wrote a huge piece describing Jim Hacker's first three days in office and saying, how did we know that that was exactly what had happened to him? Gerald Kaufman, another Labour MP, wrote something similar in the Sunday Times. and In no time, Mrs. Thatcher was demanding to see the show. She told everyone it was her favourite television show, which Tony loved, and I was slightly embarrassed. I mean, I could talk to you about this for, um, for, for longer than the podcast, but I wanted to change tack a little bit and ask you to compare and contrast British and American audiences. And I was thinking about making a comparison between two comedies that you wrote. One was um, Nuns on the Run, classically British comedy, um, which I think you wrote and directed. Yes. And then My Cousin Vinny, which is a classic American comedy. And, and I'm really interested in, do Brits and Americans have a different sense of humour? No, I think a sense of humour is universally the same. Recognition 
is different. In other words, if you look at silent movies, Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, Donald Hardy, absolutely international in their appeal, no matter where the, the, their films were shown. But when you get to dialogue, people have to recognize what the joke is about. You can't make a joke about or Walmart in, in England because nobody will know what it is. I've got an English-American dictionary with about 4,000 words that mean something different. I don't use it very often anymore because I've lived here so long. Yeah. There are jokes that won't play in America that will play in Britain and vice versa. But that's not just Britain and America. Ken Dodd had a different act for Glasgow than he had for Birmingham. Yeah. If, if people don't understand what the, the joke's about, they don't laugh at it. Yeah, yeah. I can completely see that, actually. You've also written books as well as yes. writing uh, TV and uh, theatre. How how did you find that transition? Because presumably you're writing even more than you've already written. I wrote a, a novel in in the must be in the late eighties and early nineties called May Day, which was a Los Angeles novel. I think people, some people who read it, thought of it as a Hollywood novel, but actually it's about LA. You can't leave out Hollywood if you're writing about LA. An editor at Faber who had published. Our stage play, yes, Prime Minister. And she said, can you write a book on the rules of comedy? And I said, no, there aren't any. And then I was teaching at the American Film Institute in L.A., teaching young directors. And I, all everything I was saying about comedy, as I was speaking, I thought, well, maybe that's what this book should be about. So I called her back and said, I can't write a book about the rules of comedy, but I can write a book about my rules of comedy. Nice. And she she wanted that. A few years ago, I wrote a book called Samaritans about the American, what is laughably called the healthcare system in America. And at the moment, I'm working on a TV pilot based on the book. Uh, what's different about writing a book is you don't have to please the actors. Uh, you don't have to please producers. You only have to please one person, and that's the editor. You've received so many awards for your work over the years. Um, I wonder if you could reflect back, what, what has meant the most to you? I'm fond of nearly everything that I've done. Sometimes you get fonder of the ones that fail at the box office mm. than the ones that succeed. Honestly, you frequently don't know why. It wasn't the right thing at the right moment or it wasn't marketed right. The thing is, when you make a film or, or do a play, a new play, you can know how each individual moment is working. I know if I've done a take on a scene, whether it was funny or not, or whether it was truthful or not. But you never know when you put the whole thing together, is it going to interest the audience? Mm. Do they care about this story? That's something you don't know until you stick it in front of the audience. But what, what would be my favorite shows of my, well, obviously, Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister. Obviously, My Cousin Vinny. I, I love Nuns on the Run. I mean, most of the things we've talked about. I'm very proud looking back on when I acted in Fiddler on the Roof in London. You know, I was directed by Jerome Robbins, and you know, who was a genius, and I learned a lot from that. I would love for you to leave us with your your favourite anecdote from Yes Minister or Yes Prime Minister, or or one that particularly stands out, either for its prescience or the reaction of the well, audience. I I could tell you, I mean, I wouldn't know where to begin. There's so many. <laughs> I mean, I remember Paul Eddington telling me a story. Paul Eddington, who played Jim Hacker. He said, uh, somebody came up to him in the street and said, I saw you in your show last night. You were really good. He said, thank you. 
And the, the person said, no, no, I mean it. You were really good. Paul said, oh, well, thank you very much. The woman said, because you're usually so wooden. Jonathan, thank you so much for entertaining us over so many years oh. with your incredible efforts. And as as a civil servant, I should say, I lose count the amount of times I have been in a scenario where I've thought to myself, gosh, it's like I'm on the set of Yes Minister. <laughs> so thank you for bringing that to the world, um, for shining a spotlight on everything that we do. It's really nice to hear. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you so much for coming on Brits and the Big Apple. Oh, pleasure. You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, brought to you by the British Consulate in New York. If you'd like to hear more about the work of the British Consulate, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at UK in New York. Thank you for listening.